Thank you, Rick. Kim, who's filling in for Nancy, we pray for her. She's having her own continuing blood pressure issues, so pray for Nancy. Be turning to the book of Mark, chapter 9. Mark, chapter 9, we'll begin in verse 30. Mark, chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. I want to continue looking at uh, the subject of rules of the road. Rules of the road. Uh, a lot of times, of course, uh, back in the past when we would take our trip to Soar, always hand out the rules for the road where the kids would know kind of the guidelines for what to expect, what you need to carry, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. Now, I suppose every trip has rules of the road. You may not have them written out, but we all have rules of the road. Now, I want to add one. If you're if, if you're on the interstate and you stop at uh, the, the Love's Travel Stop or stop at Bucky's or wherever you might, people pull in with a U-Haul trailer or a U-Haul truck. Be nice to those people. They're not having a good day because that means there's some furniture to unload somewhere. They've loaded furniture up. They're unloading it somewhere else. So that's one to add to your rules of the road. Be nice to people in U-Haul trailers, but there's... You, there's always rules for the road. Now, if you remember, on New Year's Day, we looked at the journey, the road trip of the wise men from over in Babylon to Bethlehem. And it was a, a road trip of several weeks. Uh, and, of course, we looked at how that applies to our own journey in life. The very next week, of course, we looked at Philip and, of course, his road trip down through Samaria that was unplanned but also when he went to talk to the Ethiopian uh, eunuch there. And then, of course, last week we looked at Joseph's road trip that spanned decades as his brother sold him into slavery. And all of these key events kind of left us with some rules of the road. I'm going to give you some, some summarized takeaways from each of those trips. With the wise men, if you remember, they went all that way. And they came to where Jesus was, and they rejoiced with exceeding joy, and they gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, these men traveled all the trade routes. And the takeaway we can look at their rule of the road or their journey is this. The success of our journey is not measured by what we gain, but it's measured by what we give specifically what we give to Jesus. They had a successful journey, but they came back home with less money than they had because they gave it to Jesus Christ. Of course, Philip, Philip had to leave home quite suddenly. It was an unplanned journey because he, there was persecution at Jerusalem that scattered all of the uh, followers of Jesus except the apostles. Looked like his whole life was coming unraveled. And when trouble comes and everything on our journey is going off of the rails, God can make sense of it if we are willing to make the best of it. And you see, as he went, even though he didn't want to be going in those directions, he preached Jesus Christ and shared the love of Jesus with others. He made the best of it and God made some sense of it. We continued that thought with Joseph. Of course, Joseph said that specifically when he saw his brothers. He said, 
You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He looked back, he could, God made sense of it. But, but we had another takeaway from him, and this is an important one. This is when everything was all wrapping up. Sometimes we might miss that when we're kind of wrapping the trip up. We were all wrapping it up, and Pharaoh sent carts up to Canaan with Joseph to go get his daddy. And he said, don't worry about your stuff. You're going to have the best of the land. You see, the carts were there to load up people and to carry as many people over to that best place as possible. The rule of the road is this. On your journey through life, when it comes to stuff, pack light and make plenty of room for people on your journey through life. Now we look at one more journey to consider before we leave January, and this will have some plenty of rules for the road on this one, not for this journey that we're looking at specifically, but for our journey through life. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, would you stand as the scriptures read? And they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And we came and taking him in his arm, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Let's pray together, please. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the journey in life that you've given to all of us. We ask that you would give us direction as we go from day to day and month to month and through the years. That, Father, we would follow your direction. Our path would be the path you want us to take. We thank you for these rules, rules of the road that you give us as we journey through life to make the best of our time here. We ask that we would take these to heart. And if there's a need here for anything that needs to be changed to make things right with you, show that to all of us today, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Several things we noticed about this journey. Jesus was busy on his journey with the disciples, and as we know, they were traveling. They did that for three years, travel with Jesus as he preached from town to town. It was, it was a traveling ministry, and as they traveled, the first thing we want to know is Jesus was always busy telling them everything they needed to know along the way. It says this in verse 31, for he taught his disciples. Now, the English language is not as precise as the Greek language, and the, the word taught his disciples makes it look like it was just maybe a one-time event. The Greek language is he continued teaching his disciples. It was an ongoing process, or we could say it in South Arkansas, he kept on teaching his disciples. He was busy telling them what they needed to know. 
But it says this, when he told them what they needed to know, and the specific thing here is this, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him after he's killed. He will rise again the third day. Now that last statement is a very key statement. It's a key statement that everything would hinge on. And the very next verse says, but they did not understand his saying and were afraid to ask him. Now, it's quite interesting. They did not understand the saying, but they were afraid to ask him. That never was a problem before with the disciples. In chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus had said a parable, and after everybody was gone, they said, explain to us what you meant about this. Same thing happened in chapter 7, verse 17. When Jesus would get through teaching it was something that may have gone over their head, they would ask him to repeat it and maybe explain it. And Jesus was glad to do that when they asked him the question, but they did not do this. this. The problem with the statement that Jesus made was not that it was over their head, it was out of their focus. Let me fill in the blanks here. Key information, back up to chapter 8, verse 27. There was an open-ended statement in the reading of our text, if you caught it. If you didn't catch it, I'll, I'll remind you. It says, when they departed from there and passed through Galilee. What's the there? Where did they depart from? That's important for us to know. Where did this trip start? The very most recent town they're in is right here in verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, about 30 miles from Capernaum where this conversation took place that we spoke of earlier. On the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And then he strictly warned them they should not tell, they should tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man would suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. This is where he began to teach these things, that in the text that we read said he taught them on the road. He continued teaching them. That's important. Now, how long did he teach them? They were in Caesarea Philippi. We do not know exactly how long they stayed there, but in Caesarea Philippi, that was three, 30 miles to the north of Capernaum. Now, but from there, they went somewhere else. They went to the Mount of Transfiguration. The exact mount is not mentioned here. But... Scholars can pretty well agree that the mount that would more or less qualify as a mount of that stature would be Mount Hermon, which is 10 miles further to the north. So they left Caesarea Philippi and went a day's journey to the north and then spent the day on the mountain, Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And they were at the base of the mountain, of course, where we see the preceding events when it says they departed from there. Caesarea Philippi to Mount Hermon was a day's journey. From Mount Hermon down to Capernaum would be about three or four days' journey, depending on how much they stopped and how much they... All that time, 
Jesus was teaching them, continued to tell them over and over, the Son of Man will go to Jerusalem, he will suffer many things, he will be killed and be and being raised up the third day. He told them over, it's not the first time they heard it. It didn't go over their head because you just hit it with something we hadn't heard before. They heard it over and over, but it says they didn't want to ask him about it because they didn't understand it. Well, they didn't have a problem asking any, any other issues for him to explain it. What's the problem here? The problem is identified with Peter. In verse 32, he spoke this word openly, plainly, bluntly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And when he had turned about and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Now, I said that this statement that Jesus made didn't go over their heads. It was out of their focus. You see, when Jesus said, you are not mindful of the things of God, this word mindful is a Greek word, phroneo. And that's where we get our English term, focused, what they were focused on. And he says, your problem is, you're not focused on the things of God, the priorities of God, the plan of God. You are focused on the things of men. So he teaches them over and over about the death that would happen and the resurrection on the third day, and they would not understand it because they were not focused in the direction of things of God. They were focused in the direction of the things of men, and that's why I just totally bypassed them and they couldn't understand it. Had, no, had nothing to do with Jesus didn't explain it on their level. He explained it very much on their level because he said he told this word openly. It wasn't the fact that they couldn't understand it. The fact is they understood what he said all too well. They just didn't want to talk about it because they were not focused on that aspect of Jesus, the Messiah. They still wanted a political victory, and Jesus was after something far greater. Then the evidence of this misplaced focus comes into consideration because Jesus asked them a question about the trip. You know, as we journey through life from time to time, Jesus sets us down and says, I want to talk to you about your trip. I want to talk to you about some things that have happened, about what's been happening while you're on the road, our journey through life, about where you're going. And he asked them the question when he came to Capernaum, when he was in the house, which would be Simon Peter's house, which is kind of home base. He said, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? Interesting. So what he said when he came to the house, he said, what were you guys arguing about? I mean, there were 12 guys besides Jesus. And obviously, they weren't, couldn't all be right around him and hear everything that he said. And obviously, they began to have conversations among themselves. Well, Jesus could hear that these conversations were not friendly conversations. These guys were arguing with each other. Now, the word arguing here is not one little spat. It was a continual arguing. It was a keep on arguments, that same Greek verb structure, which means an ongoing activity. And this is important. It says he asked them. Now, that's that same Greek verb structure. It didn't mean he asked them one time. 
What were y'all arguing about? It said he kept on asking them. Now, why would Jesus keep on asking them the same question? Because they kept dodging the question. They didn't want to talk to Jesus about what he wanted to talk to them about. That sounds familiar sometimes. And so they dodged the question and wanted to change the subject. And Jesus kept on trying to get them back on focus. What were you arguing about? Now, did Jesus really need for them to tell him? It doesn't say that they told him and he addressed the issue. Well, Luke gets specific about it in Luke chapter 9, verse 47, where Luke is dealing with this same issue and says, Jesus perceived their thoughts. Then he proceeds to tell them what we have here in the remainder of the text. He, he perceived their thoughts. <clears throat> Jesus knew what they were arguing about. Why did he keep on asking? Two things. Why did Jesus ask the question, say, what were you arguing about? Well, obviously he wanted them to know that he heard their argument and he knew what they were talking about. And he wanted them, of course, to see what they were arguing about in his perception and put it all into perspective. Two things, though, why he would ask this question. Number one, Jesus cares about our relationships with each other. Now, Jesus knew it was going to be important he was going to leave these guys with some important work. It was important that these guys could work together and get along. Jesus could hear them arguing. He could hear them fussing. And Jesus wanted to put a stop to that because Jesus cares about our relationships with each other. God cares about how we get along. God cares about how our relationships are progressing along. And this book is filled with advice on how to have good relationships with each other. You know, you hear it all the time. Somebody who probably has not read this book would say, well, the Bible's so out of touch with what we're doing now anyway. This is all different culture and all the technology. It's a whole different world today. The Bible just doesn't have a lot to say that we can use. Oh, really? The Bible is filled with things concerning our relationships. As we read some of these passages, we'll know that he is right on target. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 15, verse 1, it says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. Now, we know that, don't we? Now, we know the second part of that. Harsh words stir up anger. A lot of times, the tone of a conversation turns into an argument just because of how we have framed a statement or a question. And many times we wonder, what, what was up with that person? A lot of times when we receive harsh words or anger or an attitude from someone else, you know what they're doing? A lot of times they're simply reflecting what they heard from us. So we say, wow, the Bible does know something about us. A soft answer will turn away and tone down a conversation. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 17. A quick-tempered man act foolishly. Have you ever had to apologize for something you said and you always framed it, but I was so mad? You ever said something because you were angry that you regretted later? The Bible does know something about us and does know something about relationships. On over in the New Testament, the Bible says, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, 
and slow to anger. Wow. You see, Jesus cares about our relationships. And he cares about how we can communicate and deal with circumstances without circumstances becoming confrontations. In the book of Ephesians, the whole fourth chapter has to deal with this subject matter. I want to read several passages out of the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Now, you've heard these before because we've quoted them before. But we want to go over them again to see just how relevant the Scripture is to where we live and our journey on the road. These things were written because Jesus cares about your relationships. He asked the question to the disciples because he cared about their relationships with each other. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, the apostle Paul writes, I therefore, the prison of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling in which you were called. Verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. That is a mouthful. With all gentleness and long suffering. You know what long suffering is? Long suffering has to do with patience, but there's two different words. The word patience in the Greek, as we see translated, has to do with dealing with circumstances. Long suffering always has to do with our patience with people. And the, but the word bearing with each other in love, we would say it this way, we put up with each other. So let me tell you, a lot of people are just weird. They don't think like we do. And they've got these mannerisms, and they've got these little things that get on our nerves. That's what he's talking about. He knows that a lot of times people are going to find our last nerve. And he says, bear with each other. Put up with each other. Don't let that stuff sidetrack the main thing. And bear with each other in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The word endeavor, you've got to try hard sometimes. And with some people, you've got to try harder, right? And sometimes, watch this, people got to try hard with us, don't they? And we expect people to put up with us. Well, that's just the way I am. Well, we expect them to put up with that. Well, are we going to put up with the way they are? Well, no, because they're not like we are. They, they can't be good like we are and perfect. And Well, you know how you feel. You see, the Bible is relevant. But it goes on a little bit further. It says also in verse 25, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. How, what kind of relationship can we have if we're never really straight forthcoming with each other, if we don't quite tell all the truth, or if sometimes we tell a blatant lie, what kind of relationship is that? Well, it's not much of one at all, and it can, it can end a relationship pretty quickly when they lose trust. But now, speaking the truth needs to be done in a certain way, because in verse 15, it says, speaking the truth in love. Now, that's important. Because a lot of times people have a, a, a sassy demeanor about them, a sharp, sarcastic, mean, critical spirit, and they always excuse it and frame it. Well, I'm just honest. That's the way I am. Well, speaking the truth is one thing, but he said, you always speak the truth in love. See how relevant the scriptures are? So we realize all of these things have to do with our relationships with each other. And then 
he gets real personal in Ephesians chapter 5. I mean, the whole last part of this book has to do with our relationships with each other. And then it starts narrowing down to that one relationship that is the, a key relationship, and that's the marriage. And notice how specific he is when it comes to a marriage. Verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own body. Verse 33. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife. Three different times. And of course, the guys are saying, hey, I got it already. He says it three times, and that's for two reasons. Number one, it could be because it's so important. He wanted to drill it into every single one of us. It's important for us to love our wives and make sure they feel loved. Now, there's another one to this that you and that ladies would know. He said it three times because he was sure the men wouldn't listen the first time. That's something else. That's something else. That's something you ought to put up with, all right, forbear with each other. But guys, it says we ought to love our wives because women, if they don't feel loved by that person that they're committed their life to, their life is uneasy, insecure, and things are out of place, and it always has an effect on their demeanor. But now wives, it says this, let each one in particular love his own wife as himself. Let the wife see she respects her husband. Wow, isn't that something? Didn't say, men, you got to love your wives. Wives, you got to love your man. Didn't say that. You know why? The Bible recognizes something that this culture has obviously decided to forget, and that is men and women are not different. I mean, not the same. We're different. We are not the same. We are not the same. We don't think alike. We don't view the world alike. We don't communicate alike. And the Bible writer, God, knows that men are geared. We respond and thrive and need respect. In a man's world, it's respect. In a woman's world, it's love. So he said, men, this is what your wife needs. She needs to feel loved. Women, respect your husbands. Let me turn that coin around. If a man feels disrespected or insulted or humiliated, that's a big blow, especially if it comes from the person closest to him. Now, you may say, well, I was just joking. He knows how I am. And the man may never not let you know that that hurts or that stings. But here's what happens a lot of times when men get continual critical treatment and harsh words and disrespect from the woman they love. Down in southwest of the United States, you have cactuses. These cactuses are prickly. And if you get close to one and get stuck enough for too long, you start pulling away from that cactus. And a lot of times, if there's prickly treatment always going on and always sarcasm and criticism and disrespect going on, a man's response usually is to start drawing in and will start pulling away a little bit because it starts hurting. Now, it's subtle, but you know what that does? The woman doesn't feel loved anymore. 
So a lot of times that causes her to be unhappy. Her unhappiness translates into disrespect, and that, of course, translates into more withdrawal and it's a vicious circle. Family therapists have identified that. And I've read several books concerning marriage counseling that has to deal with the fact, you know what the problem is? Women need to feel loved and men need to be respected. And a lot of times that's the problem with marriage relationships. And God said that 2,000 years ago. God cares about our relationships. And he's given us this book. And so he asked the question, what were you arguing about? Well, let me ask the question. What were we arguing about last week, last month? at work. What were you arguing about at work? What were you arguing about at home? What were we arguing about with our neighbor? A lot of times things don't really mean anything. You see, their focus was on very selfish priorities, and they were arguing to the point where Jesus had to ask him about it. Now, another thing. Jesus cares about our relationships with each other, but he also cares about our relationship with him, and that's why he asked the question. Because the whole problem with this argument was the fact that their relationship with Jesus had deteriorated. Their relationship with Jesus was on the rails. Now, we have evidence that something was wrong. First of all, arguing about selfish priorities. And if I'm constantly arguing with people and in our relationships, whether it be a family relationship or whether it be a work relationship, whether it be a friendship, and it's just always some kind of arguing going on about selfish priorities, something's not right between us and God. But now here's something else, evidence. Don't miss this one. Jesus kept on asking them, what were you arguing about? What were you arguing about? What were you arguing about? And the Bible says very bluntly, they kept silent. And it's that same Greek structure. They continued to keep silent. So, so what's the evidence? That it's obvious their focus was not on the things of God? They stopped talking to Jesus. They had stopped talking to Jesus. The 12 disciples had stopped talking to Jesus. Have you stopped talking to Jesus? You talking to him like you used to? Are we praying like we did when things were bad and we really needed some help? How intense do we thank him for the things that he gives us? You say they had stopped talking to Jesus. And so... Even though nobody ever gave him the answer, he deals with the problem. Uh, let me tell you, you don't need to tell Jesus what's wrong. He already knows. A lot of times, he's got to tell us what's wrong, right? So he tells them what's wrong. And he says this. If anyone desires to be first, he will be last and servant of all. If anyone desires to be first. Now, they were thinking about a kingdom, so he had to talk about terms that they could understand. And the one that was first in the kingdom is the one that was closest to the king. So what he's saying, if you want to be close to the king, you want to be close to the king, then you've got to be servant of all. To be close to Jesus, we have to be servant of all. Now, two words for servant in the Greek. Translated into one word, of course, in the English, which is servant or slave. This is important 
to know which one he used. The first word is dolos, which means, like we would think, a slave, a captive, a bondman. When we think of slavery in the United States, people in chains and, and kept against their will, that's the word we think of. But there's another word for servant called diakonos, and it simply means helper, one that serves, one that assists. Now, this could be applied to an employee, an indentured service. And what that was, was somebody who got a big load of debt to somebody, and they said, I'll just work it off. It didn't mean they were in chains. It didn't mean that they were in bonds. It meant that they were working to work off a debt. The word was servant. Or it could be an employee. And it could, of course, refer to one of these bondmen. Now, now, what is the main difference we need to understand? Because here's the problem. Jesus says, you want to be first, you're going to be servant of all. I'm not serve nobody. I'm not anybody serving. The word dolos addresses the status and the condition, which would be somebody in bonds. Here's the beauty of the next word. The word diakonos emphasizes the activity of what you're doing. So let's frame it this way. If you want to be closest to the king, you need to be active and serving and helping and assisting. You want to be first, close to the king, then you need to have an attitude of giving your life to others to help them, those that need help. And then he gives them an illustration. And don't miss the beauty of the illustration. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. Well, that tells me one thing. There was a kid close by. When Jesus was in town, kids were close by. When Jesus in a church, kids were close by. Jesus was in town. So he didn't have to go looking for a kid. He found one. He's right over there. So he takes this kid, because the disciples were all gathered around him. He takes this kid and he brings his kid and he puts him in the middle of the circle. Then he does what no rabbi or Pharisee would ever do. He hugs him. Did you catch that? He took him in his arms and he hugs him. Wow. What an illustration. No self respectable Jewish man in any kind of position of prestige would ever take a kid and hug him because kids were on the lowest rung of the ladder when it comes to being esteemed by a man in a Middle Eastern culture. And Jesus takes that kid and he gives him a big old hug. Now, you ever ask the question, what Bible character would you like to be? Oh, we think about David. David and Goliath, Abraham, maybe Joseph, after he got out of the pit, of course, those kind of things. I think I'd rather be that kid than anybody else in the Bible, wouldn't you? Can you imagine that kid just doing long days going about like any other day, and all of a sudden Jesus hugging him up? Oh, I can't think of a better place I'd rather be. And notice what he says. He says this, if whoever receives one of these little Children in my name receives me. Now, the word receive here 
We think about receiving Christ as trusting Christ. And that's right, or accepting Christ. But the word receive here is, is, is oh, it's a better word in the, in the original language. It means to welcome, to welcome them, but even better than that. You see, the word receive or welcome also meant to be concerned about, to care for, or to help. So Jesus took what a Jewish man would think was the lowest person on the sociological ladder, lower than a grown man's slave in, in the esteem. And he takes that person and he says, you want to be first? You want to be closest to me? Whoever's willing to help somebody like this and to care for somebody like this, you're welcoming and receiving and caring for me in the same way. And you know the passage of Scripture in the book of Matthew, chapter 25, where Jesus said, Welcome to the joy of the Lord. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was in prison, you came to me. I was sick and you visited me. And they said, we never saw you in that condition. He said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. So what's he saying? He's saying if you want to be closest to Jesus and your relationship is right with the Lord, well, then we have to have an attitude of service to others. Whoa. So that means our relationship and our attitude toward others will reflect our relationship and attitude toward Christ, and it will affect our relationship and attitude toward Christ. These men had missed it. They had blown it. They were concerned about who was going to be greatest, the most important, the most prestigious. They were going after selfish ambitions, and Jesus said, guys, you just missed it. What were you arguing about along the way? Nobody wanted to tell him. You know why? Because all of a sudden, everything that was so important back there was so embarrassing in the eyes of Jesus. Isn't that something? The things we think may be okay, might be all right, not all that bad, or maybe even the things we need to strive for, all of a sudden Jesus comes and he looks at it and says, really? That was worth arguing about? Really? They were speechless. There, is, there was no answer. There was no answer. But now the whole issue here that started this whole conversation is when Jesus told them the Son of Man will go to Jerusalem and he'll suffer many things and be killed and be raised the third day. And the reason for that is he cares about your relationship with God. And without Calvary and without the cross and without the resurrection, there is no relationship with God. He cares about your relationship with him and he paid the ultimate price for it. Is that relationship right? He cares about your relationship with him, and he's, he wants to ask the hard question. What were you arguing about last week? What is it you tangled up with somebody about? Really? Really? Is it that important? I care too much for you for you to be bogged down with that kind of thing. Cares about a relationship with each other. Something we need to pray to God about concerning relationships. Concerning how we treat each other. You see, Jesus... Ask the hard question because he cares that we get it right as we stand and sing. Number 100.